Hello and welcome back to All Things Urticaria, your podcast. If you like, you care. The Urticaria Centers of Reference and Excellence Network. We do this every two weeks to keep you and ourselves up to speed on all things Urticaria. And today I'm very, very happy to have with me Paula, Paula Bassi from New York City. Hi, Paula. Hi, how are you doing? And thank you very much, Marcus, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, thank you for joining us, Paula. Why don't we start um, this episode by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Where are you? What do you do? Um, and maybe also, what are we going to talk about today? Sure. So I'm at Mount Sinai, which is a large um, academic center in New York City. And at our institution, I take care of about 40, 45 patients with hereditary angioedema type 1 and type 2. As a referral center for angioedema and urticaria, I see patients who have, who also have angioedema, but it's not HA type oh. one or type two. And again, this has always been kind of a question with patients, you know, putting their finger on, getting a diagnosis, um, how to explain it to patients. Uh, so I spend a lot of my uh, time with my patients explaining what is going on, what's you know driving your disease, how do we treat it. Why is this not hereditary angioedema? Mm. Uh, so again, that's a large part of uh, my practice. And so I, what I would like to talk today about is, you know, kind of the burden actually of angioedema. There's a there's quite a few burdens. Yes. There's the burdens, physical burdens. There's emotional burdens, and there's burdens actually of making the diagnosis, especially yeah. in in patients who don't have hereditary angioedema type one or type two. You already touched on this, Paula. Thank you very much. So I, I am in a similar situation like you are. Probably patients come in, they tell me about their recurrent swellings. They don't really know what this is and why they have it. Maybe they were on the internet and Googled uh, and uh, come up with yeah, ideas that are not necessarily helpful uh, in establishing a diagnosis. And maybe that's the first burden to talk about. You know, it takes a long time, uh, at least in my country still, before patients with recurrent angioedema receive the correct diagnosis. You know, they're almost always suspected to have an allergy. Um, and I wonder what it's like for you. Do you see that uh, patients come to you with unexplained or misdiagnosed uh, angioedema? Uh, yes, actually quite frequently. I mean, uh, sometimes I feel like it's good or sometimes it's bad that we have the internet. Um, sometimes it's bad because patients have an idea of what they have and they want a specific treatment, such as if they have feel that they have hereditary angioedema type 1 or type 2 or HA with normal C1 inhibitor, and they're asking for a treatment. Yeah. And I'm very hesitant to obviously give a treatment for a disorder that they don't have. Yeah. Um, and sometimes what has happened is that they've gone to other physicians who have treated uh, the patients with these medications, and then they come to me and they're saying, why aren't they working? Yeah. That's actually a very tricky situation because I have to explain to the patient they were misdiagnosed, yeah. they were given the wrong medication for whatever time period it was, um, and then a re-education. So that's yeah. actually yeah. a very hard situation for me. It, it used to be okay. just the other way around, Paula. No, I mean, several years ago, it was mostly patients with uh, hereditary angioedema being misdiagnosed as allergic angioedema or chronic spontaneous urticaria, then being treated 
for a long time until they finally came to someone like you, an NHA expert who said, well, couldn't this be um, something else? And now I, I have exactly the same situation when, when you talked about patients who were treated for angioedema with medication for hereditary angioedema, although they didn't have hereditary angioedema. No, that has happened three times to me this year already. And uh, I think it has something to do with the increased awareness of hereditary angioedema, which is great, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, shows the need for specialists, angioedemologists like yourself. Yeah, it's actually, it's it's just interesting over the past 10, 15 years that I've been, you know, treating patients with angioedema, my angioedema patients who have, you know, C1 inhibitor deficiency are actually some of the easier patients now yeah. to treat, oddly enough, yeah. um, because the diagnosis is very clear. You can show a patient on a piece of paper, their lab diagnosis. We have great therapies now. It's the patients that don't fit that category yeah. um, are really the, the patients that I'm not discounting, you know, HAE patients, it's still, you know, time intensive, but the education is very directed for uh, patients with HAE. Um, but with explaining to patients who have angioedema and looking at their lab values and seeing that everything is pretty much normal. Exactly. Explaining yeah. to patients what is going on is very tricky. So I, mm. I find that a huge burden because patients don't necessarily, they'll either won't believe what I'm saying, yeah. they'll keep, they'll go to another physician. Um, so it's a burden for them. They're frustrated. Um, their they, time is spent to go to another physician, get their yeah. hopes up. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, very very much so. And the frustration of us as a community not being able to tell them right away, you know, just by looking at um, a blood value or listening to their story, well, you have this type of angioedema. It's not that easy. You know? um, and patients often, I, I see the same thing, walk from one colleague to the next, uh, expecting quick and easy answers. And uh, years and years go by and they still don't have an answer and are start, starting then to develop um, in part based on information from the internet, um, the wrong concepts, concepts that um, are even maybe more burdensome than not having a concept at all. But no matter, you know, either way, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult situation for patients to be in. Uh. Yes, no, it's, it's very frustrating. And then, you know, trying to explain to patients, sometimes it's a lot of information at the first visit. Um, and patients want an answer at a first visit and what next steps. And, you know, it's also, they say they, you know, I feel like it's a burden for patients or they feel like they're the only one who has this. And then they're actually, you know, right. I try to explain, you know, oh, you know, I see a lot of patients who have the same story as you. In fact, I had a patient earlier or, you know, something such as that to make sure that the patients feel that they're not alone or that this yeah. is something really strange that I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, a medical mystery. Paula, I, so no question, that is one of the biggest burdens, uh, not knowing what it is until you know what it is and then getting treatment. But once that happens, and let's stay with the angioedema that's part of chronic spontaneous urticarius, uh, mm -hmm. angioedema with, with or without wheels. So I find that the actual swellings, as stupid, 
and as uh, uncomfortable and sometimes painful as they are, um, they are not dangerous, but my, many of my patients do not know that. Is that your experience? So, so they come to me and they're really frightened and they say, look, my, my lip started swelling. And once I also had it at the tongue, is this dangerous? Do I need an EpiPen? Do you know, is it safe for me to go to sleep alone? Will I wake up the next morning? These thoughts are in their heads. Is that something that your patients with urticaria and judema also have? Yes, very commonly, you know, they come in, you know, it's it's frightening. And I would have to say if it happened, if I had swelling of my tongue or lips, I would be yeah. alarmed as well. Um, and I do explain to the patients that it's not, um, you know, even though it's the same cells that are involved in the swelling, such as like food allergy, it doesn't extend to the airway. Yeah. Um, this sometimes or doesn't, doesn't always. Um, so I do, you know, I don't know if this is good medicine or bad medicine. You know, I will, if the patients are very anxious, I will prescribe an EpiPen just more for peace of mind than anything. Um, and I don't know if that's bad medicine, but I feel like part of medicine is making the patient feel a little bit more comfortable with the disease. And usually what I find is that initially in those patients that I've given an EpiPen and I'm like, you'll you know, probably not need this. Yeah. A couple of years go down the the line, and then with follow up visits, I'm like, oh, do you have your EpiPen? They're like, oh, I've never needed it. Mm. I don't, I know it's expired. You know, then I was, that I would say, do you need, do you want a refill? No, I, I don't yeah. need it. Yeah. So it, sometimes it's a process the patient has to come to. You know, I can yeah. I can explain that it's going to be fine, but again, it's pretty alarming uh, to patients when they get swelling. Like say, and even sometimes they say, oh my goodness. It was half of my tongue or half of my lip. It is it is pretty alarming and it is hard to explain to patients that no, it's gonna be okay. Yeah. Um but and that's, this this is what we have to do, right? You no, know, we have to put yeah. confidence in them. And you know, on top of telling them that this is not dangerous, um, provide them with medication that stops them from having these uh, swellings. No, that's the other exactly. part. Yeah, which is what one of my arguing points to the patients that, you know, I say, listen, you know, you don't know, we don't know when your swelling is going to occur. And yeah. swelling often does or hives often occur in the middle of the night. And I explain, you know, the dip in cortisol. And I, I say, this is one reason why you should be taking a, you know, preventative antihistamine. Exactly. Um, and, you know, yeah. you, you said something very important, and that is this unpredictability, not knowing when the next swelling will come. And and maybe for our listeners who are, who are not that familiar, uh, it can be quite frequent. You no, know, in patients with um, urticaria angioedema, <clears throat> many of my patients week or sometimes uh, more than you no know, it and and they cannot predict when this will come it comes in the mornings it comes at night it comes and they're at rest it comes when they're exercising it can come anytime and that's what drives them yeah crazy uh, in lack uh, of a better word it, it makes them so anxious that um i feel that is probably just as big of a burden as having the the attack itself you no know? Definitely, definitely. And then, you know, there are, you know, patients because it can be disfiguring, uh, they don't want it to happen. Or a lot of times, you know, you have, I have patients that are newscasters or they present and they say, I, I can't, if I'm swelling, I, I just can't go up and present. 
or I have Correct. a big event coming. Um, so again, that is very nerve wracking. And, and that's what, another reason why I tell patients, you know, the antihistamines have such low side effects and that taking them ahead of time is much more, you know, less dangerous or, you know, have adverse effects than actually going through the episode of swelling and possibly going to the emergency room, maybe receiving corticosteroids, whatever it may be. So this is a lot, you know, safer route. Oh, the issue, yeah. the issue sometimes is that patients will say, and I'm not sure if you get this as well. I don't want to take a medication every day. Yeah, and that's that's yeah. a tough one. You know, the less frequent the angioedema becomes, the more I understand that. You know, if a patient has right. like two swellings a year, you know, right. maybe I would also say, does that really make sense to take to take medication yeah. every day to protect myself from these one, two things that are not dangerous, uh, that, that can be controlled? Um, I think it comes down to the individual patient and how anxious uh, or how frightened patients are that this will happen. Um, I... I do see that antihistamines can be of benefit, but it's it's hit or miss, really. Uh, like, like with the wheels, no? In urticaria angioedema, you have some patients, that, you know, one tablet per day, beautiful, no more wheels. It, uh, I find that Oma, Omalizumab works as exquisitely well in the angioedema only patients. Yes. And, and yes. uh, many of them after the first injection have no more, no more swellings, no more attacks. Um, and that's something that patients can do themselves every four or five weeks, whatever um, their their interval is. Um, so so you use omalizumab too in angioedema only patients? I do, I do. The the issue is, and I, I'm laughing, it's actually not funny, it's is the insurance coverage because it's not approved in the United States just for um but where does this come from, Paula? Because I would always argue um, to the insurance people, this is the guideline. The guideline says urticaria is wheels, angioedema, or both. And, you know, the second phenotype, uh, angioedema, no wheels, um, is just as, just as well chronic spontaneous urticaria as wheels only or wheels and angioedema. They don't, they don't buy that? They buy it eventually, but usually what they, I mean, I'm not an insurance validator or whatever, you know, prior authorizations, they'll look for something in the note that says hive or something, you know, you usually have to go back and explain and appeal the denial, uh, stating just as what you said that, you know, pay some patients have just angioedema and that's exactly, yeah. it's part of the spectrum. Let's talk a little bit about that um, balance between uh, providing patients with something they can do when the swelling is there and the idea of preventing all the swellings. And I'm still with okay. urticaria angioedema, not hereditary angioedema, where things right. may be a little bit different different because, you know, those are the, the dangerous ones. You really want right. to avoid all attacks. But where do you draw the line? Do you have something um, where you say, well, it's if it's on, only, I'm making air quotes, if it's only one swelling per year, I'm probably not going to recommend antihistamines and try to move to OMA if it doesn't work. Or is it two or is it four? Or or where do you see your patients say, well, I think it makes sense to do something so I don't get this anymore? Yeah, I really, I actually leave it a lot into the, my patients' decisions. You know, I mm. use a lot of shared decision-making with this process. You know, I tell the patients, you know, there's really no right or wrong answer. I, you know, I said it's an easy 
easier decision to make if you're having a lot of swelling, kind of what you were referring to. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't be wrong if you said, listen, I just want to treat when I get swelling and hives with a as needed antihistamine. So I, again, I leave it, you know, because the patients need to be comfortable with the decision. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't, you know, that's really, that's the way they're going to be compliant with their medication. Yeah. And then yeah. I explained to the patients, I usually, I said, I usually would start with an oral antihistamine. Um, but then I go into, you know, if that doesn't work, we have alternatives. So exactly. I don't want patients to give up or especially if patients have come in and they said, I've taken antihistamines and I'm still swelling, yeah. they don't work. So yeah. I want to tell them that, you know, we can go up on the dose. That's one alternative or in using omalizumab is another. And I have to, when I explain to omalizumab, you know, some patients are not frightened by it. Some are, mm -hmm. um, you know, I explained what it's, it's been very safe. We've been using it for years. I go through kind of its evolution, you know, initially studied for asthma, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, approved for hives, approved, and I said it works for patients. I explain, I have, you know, several patients who have, you know, swelling only, who, who respond very well to it. Yeah. And I also, you know, I, I, the fact that it can be given at home is a big plus. Absolutely. Um, you know, that we, we use, we administer the first three doses, you know, in like a clinic setting, and okay. if it's, tolerate it, then patients can um, give it to themselves at home. Mm. Um, oh. I, are, okay. are, are many of your patients concerned with it? I sometimes have the feeling talking to uh, other colleagues in the US that there's more concern about how, how the formalizumab is tolerated or its safety than here yeah. in Europe. Yeah, there was a concern sometimes, you know, in its initial approval, there was um, with the studies with asthma that some of the patients who received active versus placebo mm -hmm. had slightly higher rates of malignancies. Mm -hmm. So you do have patients that will, you know, I, I explained to patients that this is just not related to the medication, but related to being part of a clinical trial and having frequent blood draws. And that's sure. not a concern, but some patients still are concerned about yeah. that. So I'd say that's a concern. Um, their allergic reaction, you, I do get patients that are, you know, concerned. Mm. And I say for those patients, you know, listen, we're going to watch you for two hours and you don't have to get it at home. You can continue to come to the clinic even after the first three times. And that's yep. completely fine. I, you know, I, I, I let them know that it's probably easier to give it at home, but there's no, if you want to come into the clinic, Totally, you know, that's your, your, that's you know, fine. your call. Exactly. So, um, yes, it's becoming less and less of an issue. And I think also because there's more biologics for other, you know, disorders out there that it's not odd that, you know, there, I'm recommending a biologic. Mm. Are, you, are you using other biologics already? Are you using Dupilumab or Benra or Seku, any of I, the... I haven't. I've uh, explained to patients um, that, you know, those are options, mm -hmm. but I haven't started using those uh, yet. Okay. Have you been using uh, those? Yeah, yeah, on and off. You know, I used to treat a lot with cyclosporin when Oma failed mm -hmm. and, and 
I'm liking it less and less, you know, learning about how well dupilumab works and mm -hmm. seeing uh, in some of the autoimmune uh, chronic spontaneous urticaria patients how well secokinumab and tildrakizumab uh, can work. Um, I try to do that as often as I can. It's, it, you know, it's all off label as of now. Right. Um, that that makes, it, makes it difficult, but when I can, I prefer to work with uh, a biologic rather than an immunosuppressant. But hey, yes. you said something that I wanted to come back to, and that is um, then we ask the patients um, whether or not whether or not it worked. You no, know, maybe after starting an, an antihistamine, and we just did a study where we looked at the use of patient-reported outcome measures in, I think it was atopic dermatitis, angioedema, and urticaria. And angioedema was one of the lowest, uh, or one was, was the one disease with the lowest use of activity scores, quality of life instruments, control tests. I, I don't know why that is. Are you using one, one of them? We are, we use the, AECT, um, yep. we use this. Uh, that's the one I use because it's the easiest. Um, mm. I can't explain why it's lower. I think, you know, I my gut kind of tells me is that the UCT is more well known. Mm. So I think, I mean, that's what my general feeling is, yeah. is why there might be lower uses. Um, yeah. And, and the UCT is older, you know, the ACT is right. uh, quite new, but it is in cruise now. Have you tried that, the chronic urticaria self-evaluation app? Because that works for both uh, the patients with wheels as well as the patients with angioedema, and of course for both, because it has the ACT in, uh, built in, and also the angioedema activity score. It's really cool. I, I haven't used it yet. Yes, I, I should though. It, it's there. I mean, we're still working on the U.S. version with the U.S. medication list, but patients can already use it every anywhere uh, as an international version. And it's fun. You should try. Um, don't put the I in there. No, it's not cruise. <laughs> uh, it's C-R-U-S-E, cruise. Got and it. then you'll, you'll find it in your, web, uh, in your web store, in your app store. I meant. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Look at the time. Um, Paula, this went by way too fast. We have to we have to continue this some other time. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being with me today. Talk about the burden of angioedema. Very, very, very interesting. No, and thank you very much, Marcus, for inviting me. I mean, again, this is, you know, something I feel strongly about with my patients. And I actually, I have to say, I feel lucky that I, you know, am knowledgeable about angioedema and I can, you know, speak to patients um, yeah. because they often get very frustrated, as I said, not finding someone who can understand or, you know, have seen other patients with it. So I feel I feel very fortunate to be in that position. Super, super, super. And really, that's what you care and also a care our twin network is all about. No, we are centers of reference and excellence. We provide that. And uh, if you are out there, uh, a listener with angioedema, maybe a listener with urticaria, we're here for you. Go check us out, go see where we are. If you are um, a physician treating patients with angioedema and you would like to know more about how to do that, what is important, we have excellent educational programs, uh, the UCARE Level Up program, the ACARE Level Up program. So go check that out. There's lots of new information, updates coming all the time. Um, really, no need to get frustrated with angioedema. 
um, as a patient, as a physician, we do have a good angle on this, don't we, Paula? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> that was a leading question, but thank you for walking with me anyway. Um, it was great to have you, Paula. Thank you so much. Um, oh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you again. All right. Um, Folks, that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you for tuning in for yet another episode of All Things Urticaria. Hey, if you have something that you want us to talk about in this podcast, do give us feedback. It's in the show notes. You can send me an email. You can reach out to the UCARE or ACARE office. Um, we will be happy to answer your questions here, to go deep in on whatever you want us to talk about, as long as it has something to do with urticaria or or angioedema. And with that, go check out our previous episodes, come back for the next one. And until then, be well, take care. Bye-bye.